That's a lot of people that just got up. If you haven't noticed, uh, we are all about the next generation here and discipling kids and seeing lives set on course to follow Jesus. And so uh, we love kids around here. We've got a value that's called who's next. And that is that we need every generation thinking about who's coming behind them and how can we influence them for Jesus. So um, we are in a series in the book of John. If you are new around here, just joining us, and we've been making our way over the past through uh, three weeks, and this will be the fourth week. Um, and today we're going to finish John chapter three. It's one of the most famous chapters and sections of scripture in the world. Incredibly impactful. Um, some of the most impactful verses that have have changed so many lives over the last couple thousand years. And so today we're going to get back into the narrative and look at a conversation actually that John the Baptist has with some of his disciples about Jesus. And to get us there, I just want to um, I'm going to tell. Uh, just remind you of a song, maybe some of you that are a little older in the room remember. I used to work construction, and on the construction site, they'd always be playing like classic rock or oldies. And so I got to know all these songs because I didn't grow up listening to that. You know, we listened to like Johnny Cash and Don Francisco, and that was about it. If, if you know who they are, um, well, we drove around the country in an orange Volkswagen van. But that's another story for another day. But I got to know all these songs, and there was this one song, and I bet you remember it. It was by a guy named Rick Springfield. It's called Jesse's Girl, right? Can anybody sing it for me? Wish that I had Jesse's Girl. Yeah, you know it, right? And now you're welcome, because I had that song running through my head on repeat all night and this morning, and I'm like, can't get it out. Now you'll have that experience, too, so you're welcome. Um, but it's this classic rock song, and it's actually a classic song of this teenage boy being jealous of who his best friend dated and being envious, right? And maybe some in the room had an experience or a similar experience, right? Uh, but just that, like, that's what the song is about. It's about actually him being envious. And I, you know, having it on repeat in your head isn't, it's not actually a great song when you read the lyrics, Right? <laughs> But actually, it was funny. I looked it up as it came into my mind yes, yesterday, and I didn't know this, but I found out uh, as they wrote the story about the song, because it was based on a true story, and uh, Rick Springfield said it wasn't actually about a guy named Jesse. The guy was a classmate, not even his friend, but he was just a classmate and who dated this girl, and the guy was named Gary. And he said he thought about writing the song Gary, but he changed the, the name. I think it doesn't quite have the same ring, so... We might have never heard it otherwise, right? So, um, but here, here was the quote, and I thought this was really funny because he said he's not sure if, he never got Gary's girl, right? And he's not even sure if she ever knew the song was about her. But he said, hey, I got a pretty good song out of it, so I'm okay with the deal. I'm like, I bet you are, cha-ching, on the way to the bank, you know, cashing all those royalty checks. But hey, Thanksgiving is coming, and we're in this passage in John. And, and around this time of the year, like I said, we, we, we as a culture, and I think it's a great thing to, that we do as a culture. Um, it's just a shame we only do it once a year as a culture. But we turn our hearts towards gratitude. We turn our hearts towards thankfulness. And actually, that is one of the keys that will lead our hearts to joy. 
It's one of the things in Scripture. And we see, like, like a theme we see in Scripture is God desires us like, to live our lives for his glory, for his fame, and in that process to experience his joy. Like following Jesus is supposed to bring joy to our hearts. In fact, if you read the New Testament, it's joy that's not just in spite or just because of circumstances. In fact, a lot of the scriptures, there's scripture after scripture after scripture telling us to rejoice, to be joyful. And many of those the Apostle Paul wrote as he's chained up in jail. So it's clearly not the joy he's experiencing clearly isn't a result of the circumstances, and that's kind of the difference between happiness and joy. You know, um, you know that song, "Happy if you're happy, clap along." You know that one. Now you can get that in your head and get Jesse's girl out of your head. But like the thing about that song, because I'm clapping because I'm happy, is that it's about as your happiness lasts about as long as a song, right? As long as the beat's going. And that's about how life is so many times, is that when our happiness is wrapped up in our circumstances, it's very fleeting. It comes and goes. But there's supposed to be something about the joy that we experience, about the peace that we experience as a result of the Holy Spirit in spite of circumstances that's profound and that's deep and that's lasting. And here's what I know is you want to experience that. I want to experience that. And so many times we don't experience that kind of joy because we're fixated on so many other things. And so actually today in this passage in John, we're going to observe three things, three words. I'm only going to have three words for you to remember today. Three words. Two of them lead towards joy, and one of them steals joy. And so as we go through this passage, I just want to observe these things. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn over to John chapter 3, verse 22. And as you know, we just wrapped up the, the famous passage, John three sixteen, followed by the verses that, that follow it. You know, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But then it, it doesn't stop there because he goes on to say this world already sits in condemnation for those that do not trust in Jesus, that light has entered the world, but people actually um, shrunk back from the light. They didn't want to enter the light, and so they reject Jesus. They don't follow Jesus. And so from there in the narrative, we go on to John chapter 3, verse 22, and it says this, that after this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now, so Jesus goes out. John the Baptist had a ministry of baptism. And now Jesus is going out, and he's, he's baptizing with his disciples. Verse 23. Now John was also baptizing at Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water, and people were coming and being baptized. This, is, this was before John was put in prison, and John would be put in prison by Herod later for calling him out um, because of this crazy, like, Jerry Springer sort of weird relationship. Remember that show? All the messed up? Yeah with like his cousin or his cousin's daughter. It's really this weird thing. It was his brother's wife. Anyway, we won't get into that history some other time. So John's out baptizing. Jesus is out baptizing. I just, just one real quick note on this. John was sent. His, his mission from God was to preach repentance and to baptize people into this baptism of repentance to prepare their hearts for the coming of the Messiah, for this new thing that God was doing on this earth. And I love this. So he, he went and he baptized where? Where the water was. 
And see, just a quick bunny trail, just a quick note on following God is so many times we may, we like make it some kind of crazy mystical thing, you know, that's so hard to find where's God leading. But when you know God's called you to something, sometimes it's as simple as just going where the next step leads you, right? Where does John go? Where the water is. Makes sense. See, God has the ability. You always seek him. You always seek for his voice and, and his leading in your life. But so many times he sets you on a course, and it's just you, you just have to be faithful. You have to walk out the thing he's called you to do over that season. And that's exactly what John does in life. Verse 25 says this, an argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew, probably a Pharisee or a religious leader, over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who is with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing, and everyone's going to him. And so this is so interesting because um, as you see Jesus now, his ministry begins to take off. John's the one whose mission was to come, and he identifies Jesus. Look, the Lamb of God. We saw that in chapter 1. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Um, this is the one who I told you will baptize with the Holy Spirit. This is the one. And now people are following him. And that kind of bothers John's disciples. That kind of bothers these guys. They're like, hey, that guy that you, you pointed out, look, he's becoming more popular. And if you notice, a lot of our people are kind of going over there. We don't have the crowds we used to have. And they're a little bit worried about this, Right? They're, talking, they're like, hey, we need to get, get busy on this. We need to get a new social media team, you know. We need to change our, our image a little bit. We need to think through our presentation here. They begin to compare Jesus and John the Baptist. See, his followers assume something. They're assuming that John actually would be pretty bothered by this that he'd be upset by the fact that his ministry is shrinking and Jesus' ministry over here is growing, that he'd be jealous. Why? Because that's us, isn't it? That's the thing that naturally rises up in, in all of our hearts. Now, for some, it's, it's a career thing. You know, it's a, you know, it's a leadership thing. For some, it's a, a money thing. And, you know, you see others that have a little more that seemingly taking off. Well, you're, you're not. And it's just that difficult thing so many times that we, we tend to go quickly into comparison, don't we? When somebody else, um, you know, when, when you're struggling, maybe you're single, you're, you're wishing you're in a relationship, and your friend now, um, you know, is in a happy relationship, these kinds of things. And there's always this comparison thing that starts going off in our heart. And, and here's what you got to know. Because of us, because of this fact, we're always sizing up and comparing ourselves to others. Comparison is one of the primary things that kills contentment, and it kills joy faster than just about anything else in your life. When you begin to look around and compare yourself, and I'm telling you today in our culture, it, I think we do this more than in any other point in history, largely because of the ability through social media and some of these things to um, follow thousand, a thousand, I don't know how many friends I have on Facebook, friends, you know, <laughs> how many people you follow. And, is, and all of a sudden you have the ability to see all these highlight reels, because you know it's not the real life, right? You know that. I hope you know that. Because most, some of you, you're weird, and you post, like, you know, every meal and stuff. I, you know who you are. But, but most of us, we post things that try to make us look good. We post the happy family shot, not the one 
that we got like two minutes before when we were screaming, you will, anyway, <laughs> you will smile. Get in this family photo, right? <laughs> you post the happy vacation shot, not the 20-hour delay to get there. Right? I mean, that's, that's just what we post, what we, what we want, the image we want to see, isn't it? We want to project. And so we have this tendency to look around and compare ourselves to where our friends are vacationing, where people, you know, the new, the new um, upgrade they have, you know, the new car they have, the, the new house they just moved into, all those kinds of things, the new position that they got and the promotion that they got and the fact that their child is on the honor roll and, and made it into the program and all these things. And we, we tend to look at that and compare and take our worth and our value. Even in doing good things. Have you noticed that? Like, hey, our family is doing this really impressive thing. There's this uh, office episode that uh, John, our operations pastor, reminded me of as we were having our sermon meeting. And it's uh, Michael Scott. They're doing the rabies run. Anybody remember this one? (laughs) And they raise like all of a whopping $700, you know, and 500 of it comes from just from Jan, if you know who she is, right? And then they're getting ready to, um, to, to, to present this money that they raised to the foundation. And Michael, of course, they have to get a giant printed check. And Pam's like, well, that's going to cost like $200. That's a huge percentage of the money we've raised. We're going to do it. Of course we're going to do it. Why? Because you got it, right? It's all about images. So many times in life when we start to compare ourselves, so many times that's where we find ourselves. And, and before we know it, that comparison leads us down a path that kills contentment, it kills joy, and it's very toxic to the way that God has called us to live in this world. And so they, the disciples of John come to him, and, and as they begin to talk, you know, about Jesus, and they're all bothered, obviously, about the fact that, that this thing's exploding over here, and, and, Jesus, and John's ministry isn't doing so well anymore, and it's really bothering them. And John can tell, and here's how he replies, John the Baptist. Verse 27 says, To this John replied, A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but sent ahead of him. And the first word I want you to remember today as something that leads to and builds joy in your life is gratitude. Gratitude. See, John has this clear picture, and and it's so profound. He has this incredible understanding right here that he shares. A person can only receive what is given to them from heaven. Like, hey, everything I have was given to me from God. And I don't know, so many times we don't think about this, especially in our culture, because we're so, you know, we get this rugged individual thing so many times, and, and we're, we, we idolize the self-made man, you know, the guy that pulled himself up from the bootstraps and started a business with, on a shoestring, and, and I love those stories, right? I'm very type A, I love, I love those kinds of stories. But so many times we fail to recognize all the points where the hand of God was active in those things. And if you're really honest, for those of you that have succeeded in, in pretty um, exceptional ways, you can point to the point, if, if you're honest, you can go back and go, wow, that wasn't me, that wasn't me, that wasn't me, that wasn't me. 
I, we have the story. I mean, the fact that God has allowed us in this church to, you know, to be here in this facility and, and growth and everything. I look back at, at those things and I'm like, well, that wasn't me. That wasn't me. That wasn't me. Now, we worked hard. You worked hard. But ultimately, the glory goes to God because every good thing in your life comes from him. And even if you've earned and done incredible things in your life, where did you get the gifts and the talents and the abilities to do that from him? The wiring that made you up to think the way you did and see things and put things, connect things in your mind that's allowed you to achieve so much. It was from him, right? And then for so many of you, the story was, we didn't quite know how we were going to get through it. And then this happened. <laughs> and, and somebody who didn't believe in God would call that luck, but you know better, right? You know that that was a, a something that God specifically placed in your life. And see, this understanding, gratitude comes from the place of understanding that every good thing in your life comes from him, ultimately. Yeah, you worked hard, you succeeded, but it came from him. And, and here's the thing, he's a creator God. You realize that our God is the God who spoke this universe into existence out of nothing. And ultimately, you know, if you're here, you're struggling with um, maybe God and Jesus in the Bible and even like, where did stuff come from to begin with? Maybe you're a skeptic, and if you are, we're so glad you're here. But ultimately, it goes back to, to the origin of everything, doesn't it? That you either have to believe in eternal matter or you believe in an eternal God who created everything. And for me, it's a much larger leap of faith to believe in eternal matter that always ex existed. And if you want, I mean, there's this theory that is like, well, aliens seeded life here. Well, where did they come from, right? <laughs> I mean, you can kick the can down to another universe. It doesn't really help your philosophical argument that much, right? But the point is that God is the God who spoke creation into existence, stuff that did not e exist before. Matter did not exist, and he spoke the universe into existence. Now, he creates us and placed us on this earth in his own image um, as co-creators. Um, but here's the difference. He's a creative God. He gave us creativity, which allows us to accomplish some amazing things. Humankind has done some amazing things in this world, but the difference is we've never created something out of nothing. Never. We take what he's already provided, and we shape it, and we fashion it, and we apply creativity to it, and lo and behold, God can work amazing things through that. But the humility in this, gratitude comes from recognizing that it's all originally from him, that every good thing in life comes from him. And John recognizes even the fact of who I am and the job I've been given to do, the person I am, it's from you. He recognizes who he, who he is. He says, I'm not the Messiah, but I'm the one who came ahead of him. You remember, I kept telling you that. You're my witnesses. I'm not the Messiah. And a key to gratitude is knowing and being at peace with who you are. Gratitude is all through the New Testament scriptures. Thankfulness, you go through it. Again, many of the scriptures where we see, hey, be thankful in all things. Give thanks in everything. With thanksgiving, bring your requests to the Lord. And the peace of God will, will surpass all understanding. Again, written from prison. So clearly it's not just gra gratitude isn't a result of circumstance. Gratitude is something that emerges in our heart. But the other thing that we see connected over and over again in scripture is peace and gratitude. And I think there's this thing, it's really hard to be at peace if you're not thankful. But if you can find a thankful heart, um, 
it's very much easier to be at peace, isn't it? There's this clear link between the two. See, peace, internal peace, it's the opposite of internal striving. Now, I think for so many people, this is just the place where you find yourself living is this constant tension inside that is compelling you to compare yourself to others and striving to get to the next rung or the next upgrade or the next toy, you know, the next thing. And here's what you know, because, you know, you, you're not back in, in pre-K class. Um, you're in here. And what you know is the toys you got at Christmas as a kid, they, sat, they fulfilled your heart, didn't they? For like five minutes. Because you all distinctly remember the feeling of getting the thing you wanted for Christmas that you've been looking forward to for two months and begging your parents or your grandparents to give you and having it and then waking up the next morning and going, oh. And what happens in our hearts immediately is we click into thinking, well, okay, that didn't do it, so now I'm going to move on to the next thing, right? (laughs) This is something we work on as a family with our kids because this is the way we think, isn't it? If we can just get that, if we can just get there, and there's this internal striving thing, and boy, it's the opposite of peace. And, And one of the keys to overcoming that is a true sense of gratitude. Give thanks in all things. In everything, give thanks. Gratitude leads to joy. And John knew who he was. He had a recognition of who he was and who he was not. And he was actually grateful for who God had created him to be for the role he, he had in life. He, he's, I'm not Messiah. You can't, I mean, there's just no comparison, right? That's Jesus. Anytime you begin to compare yourself to someone else and take your status, your cues on your worth and value from that, it leads in the opposite direction of joy. You'll find yourself, you, you will have no peace. And what John's disciples saw as competition to his mission, John actually saw as the completion of his mission. Very different perspective. Verse 29, the bride, John goes on talking, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. That's just a groom. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom, that's the best man, waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it's now complete. Now, the second word that I want you to key in on here as we go through this passage is envy. Envy. Let me just say, envy is one of the things that will steal joy from your heart quicker than anything else. Envy is a very dangerous thing. In fact, um, I can't remember the century. I think, was it the fifth? Anyway, early in the church, in the first portion of the church, first thousand years, it was one of the seven deadly sins, envy. Very dangerous thing in our hearts. And see, here's what's happening in here. You have this picture of, of the groom and a best man. And I looked this up. It was interesting as I was researching I found a, a, a fact. You know where the word best man comes from? I didn't know this either. Um, back in the day, you know, with like knights and swordsmen and different things like that, when, when the groom would go to the wedding reception and then, you know, get his bride um, or escort her, the best man was the swordsman who would accompany him to make sure that nobody, like, you know, 
the guy in Jesse's girl song, you know, like nobody was going to come and try to steal the bride away. And you wanted a good, you wanted a good swordsman. You wanted the best man, not like the decent man, right? <laughs> he can be at the end of the line. You like picked, you picked based on like, dude, you're, you're a fighter, man. Here, you're by my side, right? So anyway, the best man and the groom. And we have this picture in here. And in the first century, um, actually, the best man had an incredibly important role in a wedding ceremony. He would invite the guests and make the preparation. He'd escort the bride and, and the groom. And actually, in the first century, in a wedding, um, basically, they would become betrothed or legally married about a year or so, usually before the actual wedding. This is, you know, we're getting ready. We're entering Advent season. And, you know, Mary and Joseph are betrothed. They're not they're not, they haven't had the ceremony yet, but they're legally married. That's why it's such a big deal when Mary shows up and says she's pregnant by the Holy Spirit, right? That's a big deal. That's why Joseph almost ends up um, divorcing her, right? So anyway, um, so they would, they would get engaged basically, but it was legally married. It was different. And then the, the groom would typically go away and he'd build an addition onto the family estate and add on a, you know, a section onto the house uh, of, of the family estate. And when that was all done and all prepared and all ready, he would go out and he'd call out, hey, he'd call out and call his, call his bride. And they never knew quite exactly when it was going to happen. And this is, you, you see this through, you know, when Jesus tells the, the, the parable of the, the lampstands and the brides being ready. And, and so there was this beautiful thing when, when the voice of the groom would call for his bride. In fact, another cool scripture, Jesus says, I, I go to prepare a place for you. We see this picture in the scriptures of the church, the, the people of, of Jesus being described as the bride of Christ. I go to prepare a place, and don't worry, I'm going to come. I'm going to come for you, right? So, so we have this picture, this beautiful picture of a wedding ceremony of a bride and a groom and of great joy. Like, this is a joyful time. And, and John brings this up, and he says, hey, the best man, it would be, number one, it's not about the best man, is it? It would be really weird to go to a wedding where the best man was the one up and right in the middle, right? And the bride and groom are kind of off to the side, and the best man is the one getting all the attention. That'd be like, what? That would be strange, wouldn't it? Uh, we went to this wedding in England. My wife, one of her best friends, got married. This is, I don't know right after we got married years ago. And in England, actually, the best man toast, the speech, is like one of the, is about the biggest deal of the wedding. And so it's so funny as you, you hear this because we were, we were hearing this best man who was the brother like just freaking out as he's trying to prepare. And you gotta be witty and you gotta be funny and you, know, you gotta say nice things, all these kinds of things. It's, it's a much bigger deal than here. Um, but anyway. The best man, it would be really odd if the best man got all the attention, wouldn't it? It would be odd if it was all about that. It wouldn't be right. I mean, we all know that. Why? Because it's about the bride and the groom, right? This is where, that, that's where the parties have the celebration. It's about this. And John, at this point, he, has, he, he says, hey, I am cheerful about Jesus' success because of the things about him. It's not about me. He's not envious that now Jesus is getting all the attention. 
He's like, that's the whole point. I'm like the best man. I'm just here to help the whole thing go well. To help. Like, so when I hear the voice of, 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 the, of the groom, man, I'm happy. Because he's happy. And she's happy. I'm happy because what this whole thing's about is happening. It's all about him. And you see, envy is opposed to joy in your life. John says, my joy is now complete. Because he, he knows his place in the story. He recognizes it's not all about me, right? We say this all the time. Life is for you, not about you. It, it, it's about him. It's his story. And John recognizes this, and he's not envious. I'm telling you, one of the greatest checks you can have in your heart is how do you respond when someone who maybe you've been a competitor with in the past, when good things happen to them? And how do you respond when you hear that maybe bad things happen to them? Because oftentimes in people's hearts, there's this icky thing that rises up, and you recognize it. When, when you hear that, you know, somebody hits a rough patch or, you know, somebody that you're always competing with or had a rivalry with in high school, things haven't gone so well for them. And, and a big check if envy is, is, has a foothold in your life is how does your heart respond? Is there this thing that kind of rises up? Can you be happy? Can you celebrate someone else's success even when you're not experiencing it? I'm telling you, that really, to have, to have your heart changed like this requires the work of the Holy Spirit in your life and cooperating with him. It requires continually checking your heart and bringing it back before him. It requires that gratitude of saying, hey, um, I've been forgiven of so much. I've received grace, and this is about you and not about me, Jesus. Envy, we know. There's this thing, and it, it really is kind of... Um, it's like something rotten inside. In fact, Proverbs says, envy rots the bones. And some of you know this. Some of you might have family members or friends who, who envy has just, it's totally derailed their life. They're bitter. They're angry. They're upset. And a large part of that is because life didn't go the way that they thought it would go when it went better for maybe somebody else in the family. And you look, and it's just, it, it rots the bones, right? Peter one of the most famous disciples of Jesus. He says, therefore, rid yourself of all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like, you got to be intentional when you see this thing rise up in your heart to get rid of it. Envy rots the bones. John goes on, and this is an incredible realization. He goes on in verse 30. He says this, he must become greater and I must become less. He must become greater, and I must become less. Humility. It's the third word I want you to remember today. Humility. Gratitude leads to joy. Envy steals joy. Humility leads to joy. And see, humility is understanding your relationship with God properly. Understanding that the story is about him. It's understanding and being okay with who God made you to be. The fact that, that he, he, he's created you. Now, it doesn't mean that there aren't things in your life that you could improve, that, that he actually is maybe prompting you to work on. Maybe things with your health, maybe things 
um, you know, with, with the path you're going or getting on track. I mean, hard work, just go read the Proverbs, right? It's not saying like, Trusting God and, and being okay with who, he, who he's made you to be doesn't mean you're lazy. That's not the point. A lot of scriptures talk about that. It, hard work is a good thing. But it's recognizing where the source of your life comes from. And it's at, at a deep fundamental level being okay with who he's created you to be and understanding who he's created you to be. And being okay that you're not somebody else. And, and rightly seeing yourself in relationship to God as a forgive, someone who's been forgiven so much. In fact, Jesus talks about John the Baptist as the greatest man who ever lived. And I think this statement right here and this, this few verses is a big part of why. Because you see the attitude of his heart. It's rooted in humility. He understands. <laughs> Actually, for this story to go the way it's supposed to go, he needs to get really famous and I need to become less famous. Because I've completed my mission, which is announcing him. Now really, it's like, hey, takes the spotlight, swings it over, and is happy to just fade back into the limelight. Man, that's a hard place for us to get in our hearts and lives. But it's a key to experiencing joy and experiencing peace. It's recognizing God's, the fact that God has has given me a place in being okay with being my life being used by God and then be celebrating when other people are used in even greater ways. Paul, looking at this other piece, group of people that were preaching the gospel, um, and, and maybe not out of even the right motives, just said, hey, well, he says in Philippians, what then? Only in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. I'm not going to worry so much about them. I'm going to worry about doing the thing God's called me to do. I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to see my life properly in relationship to him. And it doesn't matter if I'm famous. It doesn't matter if anybody knows my name. It's knowing your calling. It's doing your calling. It's being grateful for what God has given you to do. It's working hard, but then trusting God with the results. Ultimately, Lord, the results are in your hands. And humility helps us from having competing agendas with Jesus. You see, John's discipleship disciples, um, they saw this as a competing thing. And John said, no, I'm not here. I don't have a competing agenda. And so many times our hearts become focused on our little kingdom rather than on the kingdom of God. And humility helps us keep our focus where it's meant to be. Hey, I'm not competing with you and the kingdom. Life is actually about you. It's about you. He must increase. I must become less. Such a powerful, powerful statement. Verse 31. The one who comes from above is above all, and the one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. Now, we believe here that in, in this, these verses that John, the author, the Apostle John, kind of switches again into a little bit of a commentary in this whole chapter. And, and as we see this, he, he identifies, as he will, over and over, Jesus as the one from heaven, the one who is sent from heaven. And when you understand your life in reference point to Jesus, it begins to clarify things. 
begins to put things in proper perspective, right? That's at the heart of humility. Understanding, hey, there's no comparison. John understood this. There's no comparison. He's Jesus, and he's been sent here, and the whole thing's about him. And when you understand, when, when your reference point is, is who Jesus is and the gospel, like we talked about, and keeping your mission from constantly drifting. We talked about that last week. Recentering your life on the mission that God has given to share the gospel and be part of the story. It, it puts things in perspective. And it helps you stay focused on, on what's truly important in life. When you, when you place your reference point and begin to look around and compare yourself to others, your neighbors, your relatives, your coworkers, you know, the advertisers, what they would have you set as a goal, you're, constant, you're never going to find peace. You're never going to experience joy if your reference point is that. But when your reference point is set on the one sent from heaven, it begins to change everything. If there's really a God who loves you and who knows your name and who even sent his son to die for you, which is the message of the gospel, which is why we're here today, because of that truth, wouldn't it make sense to find out what God said is the true reference point and then align your life with that? Because in that you find joy. He wraps up the chapter this way. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. And he calls back to what he talked about earlier. John 3.16, whoever believes in him will have eternal life. That those who do not believe, it's not, they already stand condemned. This is the gospel. The heart of the gospel is reach out to him for life because he is where life is found. Trust in him. Fully place your trust in him. Pursue life. Know life. But we see this beautiful phrase. He gives the spirit without limit. That God can empower your life for exactly what he's called you to do. He gives the spirit without limit. As Paul will say in another part of the New Testament, it doesn't matter if male or female or slave or free or Jew or Greek. We're all one in Christ. And he gives the spirit without limit. So you place your faith and trust in him. He fills you and dwells you with his Holy Spirit. And that's what gives you the power to live your life in spite of circumstances, knowing his joy. And then everything is placed in his hands. Let me just ask you, what can God accomplish through your life if it's a life submitted to his spirit and empowered by his spirit? What has he wired you for? See, so many people, they live their lives pursuing something that actually um, they're not actually wired up to do. And it's because of comparison. And it's because of looking around or maybe because of something your parents placed on you. And before you know it, your life is all about pursuing something that actually isn't who God created you to be. And there's no peace in your heart. There's no joy in your heart. Everything is in his hands. What can he do through a life fully surrendered to him that's been placed in his hands? You know, if um, 
a very good thing to learn in life is, is your limitations and what God has actually wired you up to do. If you put a basketball in my hands, I can play a pretty mediocre game of horse, right? It's not going to be very good. Remember Jordan? Older, everybody in the room that's older remembers Jordan. Ah, you put a basketball in Jordan's hands. He's going to win you championships, right? He's amazing. You put a golf club in my hand, and uh, I'm, I might be able to keep it on the grass. I'm, I, this, is all, this is one of my personal struggles. I, I'm a pastor, and I, I can't play golf. I always feel less than when I go to pastor's conferences and the rest of them go out. But the other day we did the staff putt golf, and um, I won. So I felt like, hey, maybe God is gifting me. You put a golf club in my hands, not going to go do much of anything, right? You put a golf club in Tiger Woods' hands, he's going to do something, right? You put Billy Graham in front of a crowd. God's going to do something amazing, isn't he? But here, here let, me, let me point this out. The point is being faithful to what God has called you to do. Being okay with that and being used by his spirit. Um, do you know, how many of you know the name of Billy Graham's Sunday school teacher? Nobody. But I, I want to say that I think she's going to have a pretty impressive crown in heaven. Just serving faithfully. Just doing the thing God's called to do. See, like the people you impact in life, even though nobody knows your name, may go on to impact more people than you ever know. It's about faithfully serving him being grateful for who he's made you to be. I want to invite Winston up. We're going to close in a song. But as, as we do this, I want to give you one phrase to remember these three words. Bye. And that's this. Envy steals joy, but gratitude and humility lead to it. Envy steals joy every time. But gratitude and humility lead to it. And see, life is meant to be lived for the glory of God, for his fame, and in the process, your joy. He came to give you life and life in abundance. And actually, that is where joy is found. And this is the lie, is that joy is found in all these other places. No, you can find some fleeting happiness. But joy has come. Joy comes in living your life to be who he's created you to be. Envy steals joy, but gratitude and humility lead to it. Would you stand? So we sing this song. Um, I just want to ask you, just to ponder these things. Is there an area in your life where envy is creeping in? That you know, wow, I've been um, really have a struggling with this. Maybe, maybe you need to just bring that before the Lord during this song and just say, hey, I want to give this to you and ask you to work in my heart in this area. Where is there a lack of contentment that you need to take before the Lord? Not a holy discontent. Sometimes there's a holy discontent to get to something or make a difference in the world. Maybe that's it for you too. But oftentimes it's that discontent that, that just thinks like, ah, if I just get here, I'll find contentment. No, that's a lie. Where's their discontent 
rising up in your heart? Where is there pride that needs to be dealt with? Where do you need more gratefulness? Have you been grateful? Have you been expressing your gratefulness to him? What a great week to do that. But it should be every week for us as followers of Jesus. Thankfulness. Where do you need to place your life in his hands and say, hey, I am here for you. I want to be faithful to what you've called me to do, and I want to trust you with the results. Would you just, as you sing, you don't have to sing. You can stand up, sit down, whatever you want to do. Spend some time just, just doing business with God, praying, asking him about these things in your heart. And let me just say, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, your first step is to acknowledge and embrace what he did for you when he died on the cross. To trust in him that he died and rose again for you. To cover your sin so that you could be part of his family. And as we sing, I just want to invite you in your own words to express that to him.